Good morning, Remedy. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to James, James chapter 5, James chapter 5. We will be studying there, uh, starting in verse 1 today. Uh, We've been preaching through the book of James for a while, so uh, while you're flipping, just a couple things. If you can't find it, it's on page 1873 in my Bible, if that helps. Um, Anyway, uh, four things. I know it's not. So there's four things I want you to make sure that you know about how we want to think about coming to church every Sunday. I say these all the time, and I'm hopefully said it so many times now that you can say it with me, and you're like, quit saying that. That's that's how much I want to say it until you get it down. So four things, and they all start with E. Eager. You can't wait to see your church family here. You can't wait to be with them and eager to hear from God's word. So eager is the first one. Next one is expectant. Whenever you come to hear from God's word, you really believe every Sunday that God is going to speak from his word to you and do something amazing in your life. Eager, expectant. The next one is early. We get here early so that we can hang out with people in the lobby beforehand, talk, get to know more and more people from our church. Uh, And then... uh, not come in late and miss the word, miss the worship, miss things. So eager, expected early. And lastly, every Sunday, I heard uh, this week, I think Al Mohler said it, that 15 years ago, 40% of church members went to church four times per month. And now 15 years later, 10% of church members go to church four times a month. Uh, and we don't want to be like that. We want, we want Remedy to be the anomaly of that, that we don't, we don't miss out on the uniting together with God's people. If church is just hearing a sermon and listening to worship music, then we can do that at home, right? And that's not what it is. There's the element of singing together with God's people. There's taking the Lord's Supper. There's being in community with each, each other. Um, there's, there's special things that happen on the gathering together of the saints in each, uh, each Sunday morning. So eager, expected early every Sunday. <clears throat> First, and, and here's the uh, next thing I want you to know is about this announcement. Make sure you write this down. You ready? July 13th. July 13th. That's a Saturday. July 13th at 9 to 12, we are going to have an evangelism project that day from 9 to 12. If you feel like, and most of us do, you feel like you really struggle at obeying the Great Commission, at reaching out and telling people about Jesus, great. This is a great opportunity for you to come together with your church family on July 13th from 9 to noon and pair off into, pair off into groups. And then we're going to literally go around and do evangelism in Rock Hill. So it's an it's a opportunity for you to have a chance to be able to put it right into practice and it's organized for you. So come be a part of that. It's a great chance for you to put evangelism into practice. Each week we pray for something local or international, uh, whether it be an unreached people group or a local church. And so today we're going to pray for a local church. Uh, it's called Rock Hill Vineyard. Ben Ganson is the pastor there. Um, really good guy. Like him a lot. Um, and a special thing that we can make sure we pray for is they have been meeting at the Y or in downtown on Charlotte. Uh, and they aren't meeting at the Y anymore. And they're having to go to homes throughout the summer. And they're trying to find a place to come back together for the fall. And he's having trouble finding a place. So we want to pray for him to be able to find a place that this summer homes uh, meetings won't, won't hurt their, their, their gathering together, won't hurt the church as far as numbers go, etc. But that he'll also be able to find somewhere uh, soon. Um, they are, they are just an awesome church over there. We love them. And the reason why I say this all the time that we pray for local churches is because we're not in competition with them. We want every church in the city that loves Jesus, loves the gospel to grow like crazy because there are way more people in the city that don't go to church than do. And so if everybody decided to go, we don't have enough churches. And so we need every church to grow like crazy and Lord willing that we would do that as well. So um, let's pray for Ben, Rock Hill Vineyard, and then we'll be at James chapter five, starting verse one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your kindness, your goodness towards us in Christ. I pray especially for my brother, uh, Ben. I pray for his marriage. I pray for his uh, role as a father towards his children, that you bless him, and that as he shepherds and pastors his family well, that it would uh, spill over into his church. We pray that you bless his church. Use them mightily as you have been in the city to reach people. We pray for this special time where they are meeting uh, for the summer in homes, that you would make this a great time of growth, even though they're not necessarily having a, a central location on Sunday mornings. It would still be a great time of growth um, and um, a time of encouragement and that you would find for them, Lord, put it a place that they can find quicker rather than, than, than later uh, to be able to have a, a place that they can meet in the fall corporately on Sundays together as a body. Um, thank you for his friendship. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
So James chapter five is where we are today, verses one through six. At Remedy, we stand if we're able. So if you would, if you can, stand with me. I'm gonna read James chapter five, verses one through six. After I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. And by saying thanks be to God, uh, that of course, you're thanking God that he gives us his word. But secondarily, you're also letting that be for you a way to say, God, the things you teach me, I wanna be obedient to. The things that the Holy Spirit uh, nudges me and encourages me to, to be responding to, I wanna do those things. So starting with James chapter five, verse one through six. Come now, you rich, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have moth, are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be the evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept... <clears throat> which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lords of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that's an encouraging text, right? Very encouraging. You have a seat. Um, no. So here's what's going on. I want to make sure we understand uh, where we are in the book of James. As I said many times, James is the brother of Jesus. And so uh, as he looks back at that famous Sermon on the Mount from J Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, James was saved after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, he recalls that, that, that great sermon. And as he writes this, uh, he, he employs and uses a lot of that Sermon on the Mount here. James is a straightforward, tell it to you kind of guy. Uh, here's what you need to do. He, he is a little bit different than Paul when it comes to theology. Paul writes a lot of theology, which is good. We need that. But James just gives you straight application. If you need to know what to do, read the book of James. You know, tame your tongue, watch your money, etc. He, he, he tells it to you just like it is. And then here, um, <clears throat> he's doing the same thing. Now, if you remember last week, uh, this particular section really, really dovetails well with last week's section. So if you remember last week, when we looked at chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James was speaking to Christian uh, salesmen, traveling Christian salesmen that were planning where they would go and saying, hey, you're just making plans and doing whatever you want. Instead, you should, you should submit yourself under the sovereign head of God and say, and instead of saying, we're just going to go do the, all these things and make all our plans, you should submit those plans under God and say, if the Lord wills, then we should do it. So as he's writing last week in chapter 4, 13 through 17, he's writing towards traveling Christian salesmen. Now this week, he's writing to a different group of people. Uh, instead of traveling Christian salesmen, this Greek, he's writing to unbelievers. And these unbelievers are wealthy landowners. So there's a bit of a difference, even though they're similar, uh, wealthy people. Uh, these people are wealthy landowners and they're likely unbelievers, not believers. Why would we say that they're unbelievers? First, he doesn't address them as brothers. Second, he doesn't call for repentance. Third, he tells them that there's a coming judgment and it's not painted in a good light. It's painted in a really poor light. And so from context, we know that he's writing, obviously he's writing wealthy landowner, writing to wealthy landowners, but these wealthy landowners are likely unbelievers, unbelievers, which should lead you to the, the most obvious question. Fudd, if James is writing to Christians, why is he addressing unbelievers in a letter to Christians? Are they even going to read it? That doesn't even make sense. Likely they're not going to read it. So what would be the purpose then for him to address unbelievers that are wealthy landowners in a letter that's primarily to believers that only believers are going to read. Why is he addressing unbelievers in that? Here is why. James, as he's writing, therefore God, since James, as he wrote, was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God, God wants the church, the people that are going to receive this letter, the people of God to know exactly what God thinks about those oppressors because those oppressors are oppressing the people of God, the church. And so he wants the church to know what he thinks, exactly what he thinks about those oppressors. And he wants them to remember and not forget that God is a God of justice and that he will take care of them. So as he addresses unbelievers, it's for the purpose of the believers to hear it so that they can be encouraged. And so why would, he want the no why would God want the church to know what he thinks of them? And here's why. What he, why, would, why would God want the church to know what he thinks about the unbelieving wealthy landowners? The reason why is this. Likely, the poorer Christians in that day 
were envying the wealth of those landowners, those unbelievers. They were trying to maybe even aspire to be like them, or maybe they were bitter because they weren't like them. And so God wants to he- them to hear these things that he wrote in this particular verse so that they don't try to aspire to and put themselves in this incredibly dangerous position of having exorbitant wealth and while you're doing that, being an ungodly person. Uh, and so as Calvin writes, he says, James has a regard to the faithful, as he writes to these, un- to these really towards unbelievers, but for believers to listen, so that in hearing, they can hear the miserable end of these unbelieving rich, and they might not try to envy that fortune. So that's what he's doing here. He's writing to unbelievers, but as he's writing to unbelievers, it's primarily for the believers to hear what he thinks about unbelievers. Unbelievers probably never will read this in the first century. Um, So this passage, therefore, serves us in the exact same way. As we read this, even though it's written to unbelievers and we're all believers, we take it and we realize he's actually writing to believers, warning us not to envy that, warning us not to aspire towards that, warning us as believers, how are we to think about money? What is it supposed to look like? So uh, the text today, verses one through six, you can go to the next slide, is the six warnings to the rich. Now, this particular sermon is a little bit different. Normally, I just have kind of one outline. I, did, I didn't do that this time, and I apologize ahead of time if this makes you like, what? So here's what I did. As I, as I read through the text and saw it, I saw two parallel outlines running in these six verses. So we have one outline where we have the six warnings to the rich in verses one through six, but there's a parallel outline that runs beside it where God points out the four specific sins that these unbelievers are practicing. So you can put it up. So you're really going to see two parallel outlines running. One is the six warnings to the rich, but the, the second is the four sins that those unbelieving rich are practicing. And I'm just going to, we're just going to kind of bounce through them as we go through the text. It'll be really easy to see. It's not too difficult, um, hopefully. So, um, We're not at number one yet, but let's look at verse one. Look at verse one so we can make sure that we understand exactly what he's trying to say here. So come now, you rich, weep and howl. These these words, weep and howl, they're not throwaway terms. Uh, James, who is Jewish, is employing Old Testament prophecy language where people in the Old Testament, we'll pretend over here on this side of the stage is the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if people were rich and they were oppressing people, then the prophets would say to them, don't be these kind of people. Don't do that. And so he uses those similar kind of words in the Old Testament like, wail for the day when the Lord is near as destruction will come upon you. Uh, That's Isaiah 13. Isaiah 15. In the streets they wear sackcloth and on the housetops and the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. Hosea 7. Do not cry to me from the heart but they will wail upon their beds. Amos 8. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day. So he's using Old Testament language. And the reason why is because these first century hearers, when they hear this, realize these warnings that he's given in James are really serious. They're super serious because he's employing Old Testament prophetic language as he tells these unbelievers that are there. So first thing is, come now you who say, I'm sorry, come now you, you rich, weep and howl. Now, I want to concentrate on the word you rich, you rich. And let's, let's be really careful and, and, and try to use as much of the whole of scriptures about what God really thinks about people who are rich. Because first, if anybody has money, it's because the sovereign hand of God has smiled upon them. And if God has uh, created a, a place where if you're a Christian and you're rich, he's not angry at you because he's the one that gave it to you. So we need to understand everything that's going on. So first is this. The issue here, of course, is not wealth in and of itself. To be a Christian who has money is not wrong. What's the issue is what's done and what's not done with the wealth. Because the problem's not having money. The problem is loving money. And so that's 1 Timothy 6.10. And so... As we go through this, I want to try to be as balanced as possible. I don't want you after this to think that God is mad if you have money. It's if you do, what are you doing with it? And do you love it? And is it your treasure or is Jesus your treasure? That's, so the key is all about the heart. Don't, don't focus on external behaviors because that's different for everybody. And how many people are in their family and how much money they have or how, many de- how much debt they have. It's all about your heart here. And you're going to know better than anybody how the Holy Spirit leads of what's, if you're obeying this. So when we see here you rich, we should realize the problem is not having money. And I'll talk about that. If you have substantial wealth, that's good. Let's use it for the glory of Christ. Um, but the problem's not money. And also, let me just say this second aside, which is um, 
since we live in the 21st century, since we live in America, and we're very fortunate, when we read you rich, compared to all the world, and compared to all the people that have ever lived in the world, likely every single person fits more in that category than not. So every single one of us, compared to most of the world, are affluent. Whether you feel like you don't have a lot of money and you eat ramen noodles um, all the time, which I've been there, right? We've, we've, I've been a college student or uh, we've, I've got lots of kids, so I know how it is. <laughs> um, but even if you feel like I don't have a lot, comparative to all the people in the world and comparative to all time, I think that this text will apply very much to us, very much, no matter who you are, um, to different degrees, for sure. Uh, so we'll make sure we understand. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for, here it is, the miseries that are coming upon you, for the miseries that are coming upon you. So there's, a, there's an initial warning given to unbelieving wealthy people and the unbelieving wealthy people that use all their money for their own glory and their own purposes. The first one is this, the rich this is unbelieving rich, should be frightened for the coming miseries and the coming judgment. That's what he says. Weep and howl for the miseries. There should be, it's a, a warning, there should be fear imprinted in you who are an unbelieving rich person because one day, because money is your treasure, not Christ, there will be a, a misery, a, a judgment that is coming. And it, it's not going to be good. It's going to be horrific. It's going to be terrible. So weep for... Uh, weep for these miseries that are coming upon you. Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be the evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire for you have laid up treasure in the last days. So the first warning that we see in verse one is that you should be frightened for the coming miseries. And the reason why is because of these sins you've committed. There are numerous, but there's four that are listed. And the first one, the first sin that you've committed, we see in verse two and three, is hoarding. The first sin is hoarding. So you can put that over here. The first sin is hoarding. As it says in verse two, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eating. Your gold and silver have corroded. These things that you've held on to, they're not supposed to do that. Lavish food is not going to be eaten, but instead rotten being thrown away. Clothes that you're wearing that you could have worn, instead of wearing them, you're storing in a closet so they can just be disintegrated rather than give them out to people. Gold, which you could have actually used to purchase or help people, instead is sitting in a closet, corroding away, not being used. God puts things in the earth for us to not store them up into a closet and hoard them, but instead to be used. As Calvin says, God has not appointed gold to rust, nor garments to be moth-eaten. But on the contrary, he has designed them as aids to help human life. Gold is to be out in commerce, helping people make money. Clothes are to be worn so that they're being used, not stored away in a closet becoming holy and being unused at all. Clothes are to be worn. So clothes aren't bad. But storing so many up to where they just waste away, this isn't good. This isn't good at all, which leads us to that second warning. The first warning is that you should be frightening of the coming misery. Because of the hoarding, the second warning is you should know this, rich people. All your riches are always, they're all going to fade away. All these things you're storing in your closet, your clothes, your monies, etc., so that no one can have them but you, you're not going to take them with you when you die. That's it. So why? Why do that? All these things are going to be lost forever when you die. And so here we see it's a picture of, of hoarding and holding things in. Instead, a better way to live is this. One writer says, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Uh, another theologian, Wesley, John Wesley says this, make as much money as you can dear Christian, and then give as much money as you can away. So again, it's not about making money. Being rich is not a sin. If you are, it's because the Lord has shined upon you. And when you do, it's about your heart. It's about your heart. Make as much money as you can, but don't love money. And as you do it, then give as much money as you can away. As I said, James, since he's the brother of Jesus, echoes the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, he's, repeating things that we hear from Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 6 says this, 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's just really simple. Like, don't spend your money on things that are only going to last for this lifetime. Spend your money on things that will last forever. And the things that last forever are specifically souls. People's souls. So use your money to advance the gospel as much as possible. You still got to eat. You got to eat. You got to have clothes. You don't want to walk around without clothes. You got to be alive. So you got to have, you got to have food and that's fine. If you want to eat healthy food, even better. I think that's fine. We should, should want to live a long time. The longer you live and the more you're clothed, the better that is for you to advance the gospel. So you have to use some for yourself. I get that. The Lord gets that. He, he actually tells us to make sure that we take care of our family. And if we don't, we're worse than an unbeliever. And so we have to do that. We have to obey God's commands to take care of ourselves and our family. But as we do that, there's a balance between making sure that as, after we do that, we also lay up treasures in heaven. Similarly, Jesus says this in Luke 12, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told him a parable. It doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he says this parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all these crops. I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and build even bigger barns. And I'll store all my grain and all my goods in there. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax now. Eat, drink, and be merry. He's going to keep it all for himself. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose, they will, be, whose will they be? Not yours, obviously. So it is with the one who lays up treasures for himself and isn't rich towards God. So this person is living without any reference towards God, the parable that Jesus tells. And without any fear of coming judgment, not storing up stuff to help others, but keeping it all for himself. And Jesus says that this person is a fool. This person is a fool. The reality is more stuff doesn't satisfy. Christ is who satisfies. So as you, by God's grace, sovereign grace, are given things, you aren't to store them up just for the purposes of yourself. You still have to be alive. But then as you have excess, you are rich towards God by taking care of other people. Charles Bridges says this. I love this. To help us understand the balance between really thinking we need stuff, he says, and when reality, all we need is Christ. And the more we get to know Christ, the more we realize that's all I really need. He says this, I have found more in Christ than I ever expected. I, I want I'm going to say it again because I messed it up. <laughs> I have found more in Christ than I ever expected to want. I have found more in Christ than I have ever expected to want. It's really simple. The more you know Jesus, the more you realize just how much you want to have more Jesus, if that makes sense. So we should be cautioned towards excess accumulation. Sam Alberry says about accumulation. This is a huge important warning for those who live in the West. We live in a society where accumulation is seen as good as in its own right. Amassing money and amassing possessions is commended in the West. It is one of the ways that we as a culture measure someone's success. The more you have, the better you've done. The things that we have are a matter of pride to many of us. James shows us that to pursue wealth just in and of itself for its own sake is ungodly. It's ungodly. Now, again, having wealth isn't bad. Pursuing wealth in and of itself to love only money is bad. So Christian, let me make sure we're balanced. Saving for your future is not wrong. If you have a family that you need to support for a long time and a tragedy hits you by the sovereign hand of God, misfortune comes, then having some savings to make sure you take care of yourself and that is fine because you want to obey God by taking care of your family. So we're not saying that. But whenever you store up, whenever you save up, simply ask yourself, why am I doing this? It's all about the heart again. Am I doing this because I don't trust God and my treasure is money and so I save up everything for me because my security is not Christ, but this stuff, that's not good. Is my security in Christ, whatever come up may, I'll, I'll trust him. And so if I store up some, it's for my family because I don't obey him. But ultimately, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1 then that's, that's the heart that we want to have. That's exactly the heart we want to have. And so this, this warning to them is your riches will fade away and we need to live every day realizing this second warning. Everything we have will fade away. 
There's nothing that here that we'll take to heaven except for people's souls. You can't take your technology. You can't take your Netflix subscription to heaven. You won't want it anyway, but you can't take it. So um, the second warning is it all fades away, which leads us into that third warning for the rich. It's still there in verse three, where it says, look at this. Um, all these things that are just wasting away in your house, they're being moth-eaten, corroding. Their corrosion, here it is. This is the second half of verse three. The corroding of all those objects will be the evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. The third warning is this. The rich people must realize that the accumulated wealth stored away in the closet is the exhibit A that actually condemns them. It's the evidence in the trial of the courtroom of God at the last judgment that God will say, the evidence is, look at your closets. That stuff that's wasting away that you could have used, it is the exhibit A in the courtroom that says that you are condemned. The rich must realize that the accumulated wealth is the actual evidence that condemns them. And he adds, in the last days, you can see you have laid up treasure in the last days to remind them, these rich people, these unbelieving rich people, the coming judgment's gonna happen in the last days. Don't, don't think it's not. It's definitely going to happen. Not only will these people be lost forever because they have laid up treasures on earth, they will serve these treasures on earth as the evidence that literally condemns them to the lake of fire. That's a tragedy. Verse four, we're gonna see more. It says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These particular unbelieving, wealthy landowners, they were known for delaying payment to their workers. People that work for them, you can see they, they cut their grass, they mowed their fields, etc. These landowners were known after the work was done withholding payment for a while just to hold on to it longer so they could have money for a little bit longer, maybe make a little bit more, then finally pay them. But whenever they withheld the money, whenever they withheld the correct uh, money, that, the wages that they owed them, whenever this happened, the workers would suffer. Their families would suffer for lack of food. You need to be paid timely so that you can take that food that you're expect that money that you're expecting and use it to, to bless your family, to give them food, etc. And these, these uh, landowners were not paying them on time. And so the second sin that they were practicing was injustice. Injustice. It was a terrible injustice. And so the second sin that the unbelieving rich were practicing were injustice. They were not treating these poorer people that work for them um, with justice. And so the Lord sees this and he, remember, this is written to the unbelievers, but for the believers to hear, to know what God thinks about them. And so uh, there's some things that we can learn and that we can apply in this. Now, let me say this just as a, an aside. Um, you may or may not ever have to make a payroll. You may not ever be the guy that's in charge uh, of paying a lot of people to make sure that these families are supplied for. Um, but even if you are affluent people, you can, you can understand what that's like. But let's just say, it's okay for you, if you're good at this, to build a business, to create employees so that you can pay them a good wage that they can take care of their family and that you can uh, let them, as they make money, take their money to further the kingdom as well. So if you have this entrepreneurial skills, it's good, but don't be like these people and withhold wages and pay them late. And also don't be uh, the kind of guy that doesn't pay well. If you, if you have this ability, do it. Do it for the glory of God, employ people and pay them great salaries. Remedy Church started because a businessman did that. He paid me a, a very good salary to do a little bit of work for him and plant a church because he was a wealthy Christ, Christian business owner. And I was able to start Remedy Church because of the generosity of this man. And he's just good at making money. And he took that and used it so that a church could get started. And hopefully the Lord's using us in the city to make the li uh, lives different. So we should realize it's good to do that. Now, back to the instance here where you have people here not being paid. And here's there's numerous ways I think we can apply this, but let's just think about a couple things. Number one, if there's people around you 
that are on the, the receiving end of injustice. If there's people around you who are on the receiving end of justice and you're not one of them, something that we can do is be sensitive to those people. Even though we don't feel it, even though we don't experience it, we can enter in with them into what's going on, be sensitive to the the hurtful end of injustice that they're at, even if we never are, and try to understand it, try to come around them and give them encouragement and love them and care for them through the injustice that they're receiving. Two, which is the obvious thing, if we're affluent, then inside of that injustice, their employers might not be be taking care of them, but we, the church, should come alongside them and try to take care of them, meet their needs, give them food, give them the things that they need for daily life. We should, when injustice is happening around us, the church should be the people that comes around and hears this and cares for them. Now, that's the immediate application. But James is actually uh, taking it up 30,000 feet and trying to tell those people, if that never happens, I want you to know something. If that never happens, if, if Christians that, are, that have money never come around you, or if Christians, the only people that you know are Christians that, and they don't have any money, they can't take care of you. You need to know that there's a greater justice that's going to happen and it's the Lord. It's all in verse four. Look what he says. You're not paying the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept you back by fraud and rich people. Those people are crying out. Those, those oppressed people against your rich people, they're crying out. And you can see those cries and the cries of the harvesters, they've actually approached the throne room of God and the Lord of hosts has ears to hear your oppression. And if in this physical life, that injustice never ends, you need to know, and that's why he's writing to believers. You need to know believers who are being oppressed. God is a God of justice and he will bring about justice one day. So that's why he calls it the Lord of hosts. He could have employed any term here. There's lots of words that we can call Jesus. He could have just said, God hears you. Jesus hears you, but he says, the Lord of hosts. In other words, you've got the king of all kings here surrounded by armies upon armies upon armies upon armies. And that guy who's got ample, infinite resources can come and meet and and bring justice to your situation. Infinite, the Lord of hosts, infinite resources to come one day and hear you. God hears, and what you need to understand is that one day, God will bring justice to those people. It might not happen in this lifetime, but it will ultimately happen. And so he's comforting them with, as he writes that. <clears throat> and so the other thing we see in verse four is this. So he, apply, he, he talks about the injustice as the second sin, but he also brings about what would be the fourth warning. The fourth warning. The wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields and kept back, they're crying out. Their cries are going to the ears of God. So very similar to the third one, the stuff that you have is the evidence that will one day bring about your judgment those people that the rich have wronged and stolen, they're going to be the witnesses against them. Your stuff is the evidence and the people that you've wronged are the witnesses against you one day. Warning to the rich. Stuff, accumulated stuff, is the evidence that you are sinning against God and the people that you've wronged are going to be the witnesses, as it says. They're crying out against you and they will be the witnesses to God. And he Here's the most important part to remember as we see this. God sees if you are if you're in a situation of injustice, the Lord of hosts hears your cries. And here's the most important thing you can remember. God sees, God understands, and ultimately promises to act for you when these things have happened to you. Might not be in your timetable, but ultimately the Lord always brings about justice for us. And so... That's the fourth warning is not only will the stuff condemn them, but the people you've wronged will be the witnesses against it, which leads us into verse five for the third sin. Verse five says this, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You can see it, luxury, Self-indulgence. The third sin that these wealthy landowners have is extravagance. Extravagance. They're living in extravagance, which also goes hand in hand with the fifth warning, which is you're living in luxury, but it's only for this short life. Warning, you are created to be an everlasting being. We're not eternal beings. We don't, we don't have an eternal past. We have, a, <laughs> we have a definite beginning, but we have an infinite future. We're everlasting 
And so we have this 80, 90 years on earth. So he says, you have lived in luxury on this earth. But then you also have, after you die, 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000 years. And how and what you do in this earth, whether you put your faith in Christ or not, determines where it is that you'll live forever, whether it be in heaven or in hell. And he, therefore he says, if you live in rich, extravagant luxury and only this earth where wealth and money is your idol, then you have lived in luxury, but only for this life. I put short just to make sure we understand. So the fifth warning is, the rich have lived in luxury, but only this short life. Only this short life, which is the third sin of extravagance. Literally, as you read it, you can see what he's saying. You lived in earth and luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is a picture of fat cows gorging themselves on food in the last days just to get as big as they can so they can be slaughtered to have as much meat as possible. And he relates it to the rich. And he's saying, rich people, you're doing the exact same thing. You're just fattening yourself up, but the slaughter is going to be worse because your judgment will be eternal in the lake of fire, eternal condemnation. And this is the exact thing that was happening way long time ago in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, they were living that exact same way. And the writer of Ezekiel looks back to Genesis and he describes Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, back in that time, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid with all that excess of food and prosperity. They did not aid aid the poor and needy. And in the same way, this is what's going on here. They did not aid the poor and needy. Instead, what they were is overfed and underconcerned. They were overfed and underconcerned. And I think when I hear that phrase, overfed and underconcerned, it sounds a lot like the culture today. A lot like the ch- culture around us now. The church should not reflect the culture. The culture is overfed and underconcerned about the people around them. The church should be the opposite. Fed to the glory of God correctly, and super concerned about the people around us. Now, it doesn't mean that we oppose culture so much that we hate it and we seclude ourselves. The church and culture have to be next to each other. And so as the church is around culture, we don't run away from the culture and we, super, we don't indulge ourselves so much that we look like the culture where we're overfed and underconcerned. We stand out as a beacon of light, a city on a hill that still loves the culture, where we are properly fed at the right amount, and super concerned to come in here as, and obey the command of Matthew 28 to go make disciples. And so we should not ever be, ever be overfed and underconcerned. We should be properly concerned for the um, people around us. Now let's be sure. We don't want to make sure we're, we're misunderstanding this. So as we read this, it does not mean that, God, God, that James is calling on you then therefore to deny the good gifts of God. If God has blessed you in any way with any kind of things. He's not saying that, therefore, that you are to become an ascetic. That just means someone who doesn't eat and puts off anything and live off in the woods like John the Baptist and eat, and eat bugs. He's not saying, unless the Lord's specifically calling you to that, he, he, James is not calling us to eschew or to cast away the good gifts from God or deny good gifts from God. God wants to give us good gifts. And therefore, when he does, we should accept them from our, our Father who loves us. Paul addresses this. I'm just going to read it real fast. In 1 Timothy 4, he says this. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some are going to depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. And those people are going to forbid marriage. They're going to require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God that's made by, created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. So when God gives us gifts... James is not calling us to throw away the good gifts of God. Instead, as those gifts come to us, what James is warning us against is an ungodly attitude that sees ourselves as the center of everything instead of Christ. And so when God gives you good gifts, you should be excited. Just think of it this way. I've got, as you said, numerous children, but I can remember specifically um, Liam, whenever he turned five years old uh, at his birthday, Maybe y'all remember these things. You remember fidget spinners? That was a thing at one point, right? 
fidget spinners. Like, those aren't a thing anymore. But Liam loves, at that point, fidget spinners and Batman. And so we, we found a present that combined the two worlds that he loved so much, a Batman fidget spinner, right? And we gave it to him. He was opening his presents. And I'm going to say what he said, and then I'll have to translate it afterwards. But he said, oh, it's a Batman fidget spinner. Oh. Like, what he said was, ooh, ooh, ooh. It's a Batman fidget spinner. Ha, 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 ha. Like, he was so excited, right? And in that moment, <laughs> when I saw that, I'm video, and I still watch it. In that moment, when I saw it happen, and every time I watch it on video, as his dad, think of, think of the father here. When I see him accept that gift, and I see the excitement he has, I love to see him so happy and receive that gift with joy. How much more then does our Father in heaven, whenever he gives us a good gift, love to see us receive that gift with joy and be happy? So the good gifts from God that he gives you are meant for you to be thankful to God. And so that Jesus still remains the center, not you. And so God's not calling us to throw away the good gifts. Instead, receive the good gifts with a thankful heart. And as we have them, now how can I take this good gift to uh, if we're talking about money, to take care of my family and then therefore not hoard it all, but now serve the people that God puts around me. That's what the essence of what's going on here. He wants us <clears throat> to think of it that way. So this is what James is doing. In essence, he's doing this. He is writing a theology against treat yourself philosophy. You know, treat for yourself Parks and Rec, if you don't, I'm sorry. But there's this philosophy and, and, and Parks and Rec is treat yourself James is writing a theology against treat yourself, saying you're not the center of the universe. Jesus is the center of the universe. So treat your savior, not treat yourself, is what he's trying to say. So what's the balance? I just made that up right then. I forgot to say it first service. It's pretty good. So what's, what's the thing here? Here's the thing. If you are affluent, and likely we are, if you are affluent, your money is to be used is to use to bless people. Extravagance is not something that Christians should be acquainted with. Extravagance is not something Christians should be acquainted with. We should instead take our money to take care of the family that God gave us or the people around us that we care about or the, the roommates or the super close friends that we have. We take care of those people because God's given us that and we receive it as, a, as Liam, so happy. And we use it because that God wants us to do that. And then after that, we take what's, le- what's left to serve the people around us that need help. To find people that are uh, objects of injustice and come alongside them and bless them. So that was the third sin and the fifth warning. And that brings us to the last one in verse 6. Verse 6, you have condemned <coughs> excuse me, and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The fourth sin is the condemnation of the righteous. These rich people have literally condemned God's people. Ultimately, their oppression of these Christians will lead to their own oppression, to their own condemnation. But in that earthly life, they had condemned the righteous. And then he says, he does not resist you. He does not resist you. What this means is this. Um, the righteous person that you have oppressed, he doesn't avenge himself. He doesn't resist you. He doesn't avenge himself because he's going to leave that to God. He knows that ultimately God will bring that about in his own timing. So the fourth sin is the condemnation of the righteous. The sixth warning built up in number six is this. The sixth warning is you should really be cautious, rich people, Because the sin that you committed is that you have condemned and murdered God's people unjustly. That's a massive warning when you think about it as someone who is an unbeliever that oppresses God's people. You have literally condemned and murdered God's people unjustly and God does not, God will not take that. As we said, verse four references Jesus specifically as the Lord of hosts the commander of armies upon armies upon armies upon armies. Many, 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 many fighters are around him. There are literally hosts 
And Jesus Christ is the Lord, the King, the commander of them all. So in the first century, the hearers in this particular letter, as they hear this, that brings to the imagery of them that Jesus hears his people's cries, like in verse four, and that he's coming to fight for them and vindicate them in due time against these oppressors. He's going to do it. And he's letting these Christians know you are being oppressed, but have faith in the Lord of hosts who will come beside you one day. If not in this life, ultimately it will happen in the grand scheme of things. And he will come and he will bring out justice for you. That's how the first century here, I think, hears this. But here's how the first century here and us hear this. When we hear about the Lord of hosts, the king and commander of armies upon armies upon armies, it doesn't just bring the imagery of Jesus hearing his people's cries, but I think it brings imagery ultimately of the gospel, of the greatest fight that Jesus will do for us. Not in, and these are not small things, not in earthly oppression, but the huge thing that has oppressed us for all time, which is our sin. Jesus, the Lord of hosts, the commander of armies upon armies upon armies upon armies, who could have brought and brought justice, turned around and said, stay in heaven. I'm going to take care of this thing by myself. He is the commander upon armies upon armies, but of the first century here and us, I think the way we hear the Lord of hosts, it brings upon to us the imagery of the gospel where the commander of the armies left heaven by himself and came and fought the battle against our greatest enemy, which is not poverty or hunger. Those are serious, but our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death, And the Lord Jesus, our warrior, was strong all the way to the cross and into the tomb and eventually resurrected. And because he was strong, he defeated our greatest enemies, not the earthly enemies, but our spiritual enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And if we put our trust and faith in him, because he died on the cross for us, we can be forgiven of not only all the sins we've committed up until this point, but all the sins we will commit in sanctification through the fight of faith. So the way we hear about the Lord of hosts is to remember that the Lord Jesus is our warrior who fought for us on the cross because we never could have done it. And he gives us forgiveness of our sins if we put our faith and our trust in him. All of our tendencies will be to preserve ourselves monetarily and that's not what we're supposed to do. Instead, we're supposed to put all our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, our warrior, who fights for us ultimately and brings about us salvation. So here's the application then. Here it is, both to unbelievers who hear this and to all of us who find ourselves treasuring money instead of Jesus. The application for both of us is repent. Turn from that. Confess that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness. James doesn't tell these unbelievers in this particular text directly to repent, but their sin should awake them up to cause that to do, them to do so. And what they need to do is trust in Christ. And what we need to do, if we put our hope in monetary gain, we repent of that and say, Christ, you're my all. The good news is, if you still have breath in your lungs, if you repent, you can find grace. You can find grace right now. There was a man named John Newton that lived in the 1700s that found this kind of grace. John Newton was an abusive slave trader in the 1700s. He sold African slaves and practiced it, a wicked practice for many years. And he was in a storm in the mid 1700s in a ship and it almost sank. And as he was um, profiting from the African slave trade, he called out to God and said, God, keep me alive. If you do, I need deliverance. I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. It eventually led to his conversion. And after that, he became a pastor and he fought against the African slave trade with a man named William Wilberforce. And they fought for years and years and years until they finally ended the African slave trade in England. They didn't end slavery. They ended the slave trade. And after they ended the slave trade, after many 30-something years of fighting, they said, now it's time to fight against ending slavery. And as he finished his life, he went on to write one of the most uh, well-known hymns ever. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound as he writes, that saved a wretch like me. He knew that he was a wretch because of the horrific things that he practiced being an African slave trader. That same grace that was extended to him, since we're all like Paul from 1 Timothy 1, the greatest sinner we know, can be extended to us 
grace transform Newton and the grace of God can transform the unbelieving slave, uh, slave owner, the unbelieving landowner, the presser, and us. The same grace can, can transform us. So what do we do? We repent and after we repent, what do we do? This is what we do. Now remember, the Bible wasn't written with these chapter divisions, etc. There was no sixth and like James went and took a nap and came back three months later and wrote seven, new idea. Six and seven go together, right? You can see that by the word therefore, right there. Be wicked, be, be patient, therefore. So therefore is the link that says, look to verses one through six. And we're gonna talk about seven next week. But I'm just using that as my conclusion. Therefore, in the meantime, we repent. And then while we live, what do we do? In this meantime, what do we do? If this is happening to us in verses one through six, therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Live right now with absolute patience till Jesus comes back because you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna set all things right when he comes back. In the meantime, we're to be patient, waiting for Christ to set all things right. And church, in the meantime, this is what we do. We pray that we don't break the 10th commandment, that we covet we pray that we don't break that covetousness. And we, we use, I think, texts like this. This is Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. We pray verses like this. The, the spirit of this text, we pray, in the meantime, I want to be faithful until you come set all things right. Let me live this kind of way. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me for today. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We wait for the Lord, we take what he gives us, and we honor him with our lives. So this text is aimed at unbelievers, but we can apply it to ourselves, knowing that God is serious about his people not hoarding wealth. We don't hoard wealth. God is serious about us not cheating our workers and making sure that if people are recipients of injustice, that we come alongside them and we love them and we care for them and we empathize with them and we, we, we help them. God is serious about us not living in extravagant luxury or uh, flamboyant living, self-indulgence, because there's people around us that have real physical and spiritual needs, and we need to take our resources. We don't need to be extravagant, take our resources and care for the people around us. And so may we use our wealth to bless others around us, care for the poor, and advance the gospel, as we're told to in Matthew 28. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your amazing love that you've given to us in the gospel. And we pray that as we look at this text, that we would be mindful, God, of just how much you love us. That you are the Lord of hosts. That the biggest problem we had was our sin. And you didn't even use the hosts around our army. You came, you emptied yourself as Philippians 2 said, became a man. We're obedient. You were obedient all the way to the cross. And therefore now at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Lord, thank you for being obedient and fighting our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And so that we can repent of our sin, trust in you and be forgiven forever. In the meantime, God, help us be patient for the coming of the Lord. Help us live lives that show that Jesus Christ is the center of the universe and the center of our wallet. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper. If you're a baptized believer in Jesus, this time is for you. You may want to take a few moments to think and pray and uh, think, 